All right, I haven't done this very often. I don't know that I've ever done this actually in a sermon. I'm trying to, uh, but a couple of ideas we're going to talk about this morning that I'm not, not sure I'm good enough with words to convey. Uh, but let's uh, first put the text in front of us. We're going to be preaching through Revelation over the course of uh, the next few weeks leading up to uh, Ascension Sunday. And uh, the lexical readings uh, for this time in the church year uh, include... The readings from Revelation, which deal primarily with the images of the throne room itself. Not so much some of the uh, interesting passages relating to the seven churches or some of the specific judgment passages, but really the vision of the throne room in the midst of the narrative that is the prophetic book of Revelation. And so we're going to walk through those uh, visions in uh, the throne room together up until uh, Ascension Sunday. Uh, not surprisingly, because some of our uh, fathers and mothers in the faith that went on before us can count, uh, it, we will end wonderfully in Psalm uh, Revelation 22 with Christ uh, coming back, which is kind of handy on Ascension Sunday. So we got that rhythm leading up uh, to Ascension Sunday. And then just if you're really, uh, you know, I'm going to say this because clearly somebody's been burying their talents, which you and God will have to deal with later. Uh, as far as playing for us over the last two and a half years. But we'll deal with that later. But just to know what you're going to miss when you're leaving is that this summer we're going to also then do uh, a quick study through the uh, 12 minor prophets. We had 12 Sundays, and so we'll, uh, we'll go through those chronologically and then uh, in the fall start a series on relationships. But to start off here, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 1. We're going to read verses 4 through 8. And I hope, again, that we have an opportunity to be refreshed and renewed by the great joy and vision that John has in the midst of great transition and renewal in creation. Hear now God's word. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before His throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To Him who loves us and freed us from our sin by His blood. And made us a kingdom of priests to His God and Father. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, He is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him, and those who perceived him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, this is a text, Lord, that we desire to, to find peace in, even as it challenges and encourages. Lord, we ask that in the power of this passage, the glory of our God revealed, that our hearts might be stirred again, comforted and encouraged. And Lord, given what we need, that we might be your hands and feet. And Lord, whatever is said this morning that is not true, may those words be quickly forgotten. In Christ's name, amen. So as we look at a text like this, I want you to first notice 
how quickly the celebration is put into verse. John begins to write about the goodness of God and he sees what is happening and he writes in this introduction as he writes to these churches and begins his letter and his invitation, the salutation becomes one of a celebration and a delight and a reveling in the glory of who God is. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And John's words become rich. And we are encapsulated with a great reality that we have a Creator God who transcends our understanding of time. This thing, time, which seems to be ultimate, which seems to press upon us all the time, making life seem long at certain periods and incredibly short in others, that time does not function the same way for the Creator of the universe. The reference here of the God who was and who is and who is to come clearly takes us back to Exodus, where God reveals Himself to Moses and by doing so affirms that He is a God who was the God of the patriarchs, who is the God who will redeem Israel, and He is the God who will lead them into the promised land. He is before, He is now, and He is yet to come. He does not function in time the way we do, and that is a comfort That is an assurance because if God is caught in the same system you and I are, He is reacting constantly to the nuttiness that goes on. And a reactionary God, one who is caught in the same flow of time, is a terrifyingly weak and anemic God. It's one that I would create because it would be kind of like me. I can't imagine something transcending those things that seem so ultimate to me. And so for John to open up his understanding of the the amazing culmination of Christ's ministry and what it means to Christ's church, he wants to first and foremost assure us of peace, of course, as they always do, and as we just did for one another. And then the reality of who God the Father is. And then assure us of who Christ is. So this whole vision is going to be done in the context of the one who gave himself for us and is the King of Kings. And how can we not go to Psalm 72 or Psalm 2 where the Lord establishes his king on his throne? And all of the plans of the world and all of the beasts that are going to come crawling out of the sea and all of the plans of man are going to fail in relationship to the one who is firmly established on the throne. The Lord scoffs. Not at the pain, not at the sorrow that they will cause, but at the absurd notion that the creation could actually undo the Creator. It is laughable. And the King is established on His throne for our good, for all who hear, for all who know We have the amazing language of the very Shekinah glory of God, right? That that cloud imagery, and we won't go too far into it, but that's the language of the cloud in which God presented Himself to lead the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. It is the normal language that the glory of God cannot be seen directly, but appears 
as a pillar of cloud in the day and a pillar of fire at night because the reality and the glory of God in the presence of his people is awesome. And so Christ comes in the very Shekinah glory of God, robed in that same cloud, robed in the same one, so that every reader who's ever read the Old Testament would go, my stars, that's the one who led them out of Egypt. He is back, and He is leading us, and He is established on His throne. And the Spirit is described in fullness. Here in this text, we could... The scholars give us lots of interesting ideas about what those seven spirits could mean and why. It's completion. It is the reality that the Spirit is big enough and full enough and comes in its fullness. You see, for so much of history, they were longing for the fullness of the Spirit to be poured out. And it was at Pentecost that the fullness of the Spirit. Was the Holy Spirit present in the Old Testament? Absolutely. But something was different. But at Pentecost... The Spirit is poured out in His fullness. And what John is mostly doing here, not completely, is saying that you have the Father who was and who is and who is to come. The fullness of the Father described. The Son sent and firmly established with the very of glory of God as His vehicle and His presence surrounded by those great clouds that indicate the presence of the Holy One and the fullness of the Spirit dwells amongst us. And John delights and celebrates. And yet there is a warning, isn't there? Behold, He is coming in the clouds and every eye will see Him. And those who pierced Him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. Even so, Amen. It's not a neutral event. The coming of the Lord is never a neutral event. It is not a eh. It is either thank God or oh no. And not oh no in a judgment sense, but oh no, no. You will not be my king. I will choose hell. I will choose in that a powerful uh, passage, Milton, I would rather rule in hell than serve in heaven. They will wail. They will not praise. And it will transform the world. So what do I want us to understand about how exciting Revelation really is, and how really rather not terrifying it is. Well, when the Alpha and the Omega expresses himself, I want to suggest that there are some ways in which we need to remind ourselves of creation itself and creation, fall, redemption, and how that works, so that we can understand what is happening in the book of Revelation, because what was being described is the transformation of the earth into the new heavens and the new earth and the Shekinah glory of God being restored amongst his people and the implications therein. And so I'm obviously don't do this a lot, so please forgive me. And of course, now I'm nervous, which means I'll probably misspell the word Jesus if I write it up here because I am not, I, I speak for a living on purpose. Not, I don't write for a living. So I want to suggest that as we start this, right, this is blank, Right? And so in the beginning, there was nothing. There was God. There are no parameters. We don't even have parameters as a topic. There simply is 
God. And apparently he exists in a triune relationship. But there's no stuff. Genesis 1 tells us that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Stuff. So at some point, whatever God existed in wasn't what he currently describes as his place of dwelling called heaven. He simply was. And then he creates this thing called heaven. And heaven is really rather massive. It is the place where God dwells. And I don't know what the parameters are, and I'm not suggesting that anyone does. But he dwells. He creates a place that he chooses to inhabit. Don't know that he's limited to it, but there's a way in which God describes himself as being in heaven. And then he decides to create a thing called the earth, the rest of the universe, the cosmos, the material world in which we live. Now, I draw that with permeable because it was never meant to be a hard line. And this probably shouldn't be a hard line either. But this is permeable space. It's not a hard line around this thing called earth, this thing called the cosmos. And God then creates Adam and Eve, you know, in stereotypical form because we've got to draw the, you know. He creates Adam and Eve. They should have arms. Right? And they dwell here, but there's permeability between heaven and earth, the place where God dwells, because the Shekinah glory of God can exist perfectly happy around Adam and Eve because there is no sin or death yet in the world. This is permeable space. And he creates in the midst of that another smaller permeable space called the garden where he will come and have particular relationships and conversations with, and worship will happen. It is a unique space. It doesn't mean that God can't interact with Adam and Eve in other places, but that there is also a special place set aside that they might come together and fellowship and that God might instruct and encourage them. That's the Garden of Eden. We know that there are at least four other locations, and I'm not going to get too crazy here, but they were expected to leave the garden. There are four rivers, and on those four rivers, there are different things out there that they're supposed to discover. Some have gold, some have jasper. But the point is that Adam and Eve don't just exist in the garden. They exist in creation, which is a permeable space between heaven and earth, where God meets with his people and delights to reflect his glory and his being in and through his interaction with humanity. And this is the way it was designed. Permeable space. Space where God and his people dwelt together. But then something happened. I guess, you know, if you're drawing stuff. Kids, what happened? You can tell me. The not good thing. What do we call it? That was creation. What's the next thing? The fall. Thank you, Mrs. Bell. All right, so the fall. Right? You still have heaven. But now... Earth has become separate from heaven at some level. They can't coexist. They have to separate because this place, heaven, is completely perfect and cannot tolerate much the way uh, your body can't tolerate an illness, right? It sends T-cells and all the beautiful things that God created to go and attack that thing that's trying to kill you and to remove it from your body. 
A fallen earth cannot exist as permeable space between heaven and earth because heaven will have to do business with it. And that will not go well for a fallen cosmos, for fallen humanity. And so there becomes, oh, see, I didn't do my drawing very well, a less permeable, but still a need for space to interact between God and His people because He does not leave us alone. And what does this space become? Well, early on, it becomes uh, the tabernacle. And then it becomes the temple. It's the place where God dwells. He actually comes and inhabits it in the midst of His people. And there, even for a moment, though there is an amazingly heavy shroud, a curtain that was so thick that it had weight and gravity to it. It was not a thin curtain between the holiest place and the holy of holies. But it was slightly permeable. You could get close. And what you had to do, though, to even get into this space is the whole litany of the sacrifices and all of the recognition that this space was so precious and so hard to enter because of the fallenness and the brokenness and the sin that was rampant that we read in the Old Testament. But this becomes a place where God can meet with His people. And there is some connection between heaven and earth. And so we have a place of worship and we have a place of fellowship. But it's not good enough And there's no way this circle is getting back in here through the temple. This is why Paul says things like, if the law, if righteousness could have been achieved through the law, then Christ doesn't need to come. If this was enough, ever enough, if the blood of bulls and goats and doves was enough to reunite heaven and earth in perfect relationship, then Jesus doesn't need to come. But of course he does. And the temple shows us that we are not going to get back in to perfect harmony the way it was described earlier if it stays the same. So what happens then is that heaven is here. I'm going to do a better job. And because of the cross, this space now begins to ascend, and this space begins to descend. Heading back to the unity that it once had. Because of Christ, because of what He does, the opportunity to dwell in the presence of God without fear is reintroduced. The reality that we no longer have to sacrifice, but sacrifice has been made for us, puts us on a trajectory that is really quite different. In most of history, up until the cross, yes, God was saying, I'm going to restore things, but we didn't know how. And in a real sense, the turn hadn't been made. That's why the cross is so important. That's why the resurrection and the empty tomb is so important. Because the turn has been made. In cosmic history and time, the turn has been made. And we are heading towards the consummation of all things, which is a reunification of these. 
And what we're going to read in Revelation time and time again is the removal of those things which would make this line a hard line because it can't interact with the divine. Those are being removed so that we are more and more able to dwell with God without fear. In awe, to be sure. But without fear of judgment because death and sin are removed. Now here's what makes Paul's writing so difficult, and here's what makes some of our readings about this so difficult, is what happens in 70 A.D. The temple is destroyed. And for our Jewish friends, there is no longer a connection place between them and God. And so what you read in the rabbis is an attempt to try and understand what happens now. With the temple gone and with the sacrificial system gone, how do we communicate with the divine? Not just in prayer life, which they've always understood, but in the sense of heaven and earth being reunited. Not in the ability to have a personal relationship with God or a prayer life or a devotional life, which many of our Jewish friends do and are very devout, That's not what we're talking about. That's the American sense that everything about Jesus is just about me. It's about cosmic transformation. And what you read in the rabbis post-70 AD is how on earth does this get fixed? Because there's no longer a place. And it, it is a great theological challenge to figure out how to communicate. And the challenge that Paul brings and the offense of the Gospel is that Jesus was that bridge. That the divine made that commitment. That Jesus took our sins. And for those who say that can't be the answer to the Messiah question. That that is not the way that God operates. With the temple gone, There is calamity. It is the end of a dream. And that's why the language is called apocalyptic. You see, you and I think of a building being destroyed. It's rather sad that Notre Dame burned. Eh. It's more than eh. But it's not cosmic destruction. For a first century Jewish individual, a faithful believer, the temple was the place where God and humanity met. And if there was going to be any reuniting of these two spheres, it would be through the temple and the work of what God was doing. And with the temple gone, it was absolute end of their understanding of how the cosmos worked. Was it the literal end of time and space? Clearly not. You and I are standing here. In fact, it never meant that, right? That is a really late invasion into biblical thought that what John or anybody was talking about was the end of the world. God never talks about the end of the world. He talks about the restoration of the world. Which will mean the removal of sin and death. But for a first century Jewish individual, when the temple is destroyed, all of that language that is so overwhelming for us, sun and moon falling, Darkness. Imagine the very means by which God has promised to interact with His people was suddenly being preached against that it was about to end and that an individual was saying, I am now that temple. 
This idea of how these are unified is no longer a building. It is me. And the clock is ticking because the temple is condemned. Because it's been replaced by me. That's the offense of Christ. Not just to a pagan world, but specifically to the brothers and sisters, the friends, the families of Paul and Peter and John. How to help them understand that Jesus was the new temple. And why when John writes and Paul writes with such passion, and when Jesus preaches about what's going to happen when the Romans roll in and destroy Jerusalem, and why it will absolutely feel like the end of the world and the cosmos, because now there is no way home. There's no way to get back here if the temple is gone. And just let that sit for a moment. If someone were to undermine your complete understanding of how it is you have relationship with God and in a cataclysmic event it was erased from you, would that not seem like the end of the world? For Pete's sakes, we write love songs feeling like it's the end of the world when we lose a loved somebody we've been dating. Imagine that on a cosmic scale. It's not overly dramatic to say, The stars have fallen. I no longer see the glory of creation. It's all passed away. And there is no point. And what John is saying is, please, please hear me, dear brothers and sisters, that he really is all that we hoped for, all that the psalmists wrote about, everybody, the prophets, all the way back to Moses have looked at this day. And it is here, and we are moving to a new heavens and a new earth. And I could draw another one, but time is story. But what is now in the middle? Revelation 22. As we come to the end of that book, and as we are assured of all things coming back together, what comes in the clouds? A new Jerusalem. A city. A place where God dwells with His people. The permeable reinstated. The reality of heaven and earth reunited, still distinct and yet without boundary, without a sense of distance. This is where we're headed. This is where the book is headed. This is what it means for Jesus to be on the clouds. Not that he's got an elevator made of puffy things, but that the very Shekinah glory of God dwells amongst his people. And that is power, that is hope. That is, again, reunification. That is what we preach. That is what we live. That these things are coming back together. And so the question for us always, 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 is do we live here? Or do we live here? Are we living in the growing reality of this kingdom, which operates very differently? than the kingdom of the world. It's still in the world, but it's not of the world. The pressures and the fears, the paranoia, the anxiety, the anger, the hatred. I'm tempted most of the time to live here. Here seems dangerous. It doesn't seem to make sense. It seems weak. 
it seems like defeat. Out here, it seems like I can win a, at least a short-term battle. The question is, where do we live? This is happening. This is not going to stop. This, an even better and richer way, is where we're headed. It's already begun. The question is now, which do we live in? As believers, do we live in the permeable space between us and God? Or are we tempted to live in that hardscape which seems more solid and yet so much more painful? So much more ambiguous. The hope of Revelation is clarity even in the midst of calamity. Comfort in the midst of transformation. And that is something humanity will go through until Jesus returns. There will obviously be times of peace. But we cannot stop the calamity. We cannot stop the transition. So how do we function in it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that You be merciful to the preaching of Your Word. We ask again, Lord, that You would encourage us. Lord, not in any arrogance of knowing something secret or even knowing something that others don't, but Lord, in the assurance of knowing You. That seemed to make You humble. That seemed to make You attractive. That seemed to make You loving and patient and gentle and kind. And that's what we want. As we know the assurance of Your return, may the fruit of the Spirit characterize our response to the preaching of Your Word. Amen. The ushers would come forward at this time. We'll take up the tithes and offerings. Again, an opportunity for us to give back a portion of what He's generously poured out on us.